Well then, with a view to the uh, blessing and help of God, let's uh, turn to Luke chapter 4. And after uh, visiting the synagogue in Nazareth last time, we'll visit the synagogue in Capernaum this time, where in verse 33... We read that in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. In the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. As I mentioned before the reading, we, we've seen how Christ uh, returned from his first visit to Jerusalem returned to Galilee and began to preach. He began to preach the gospel in that region. And Matthew tells us that by doing so, an old prophecy was being fulfilled. That prophecy was the one that Isaiah had delivered 800 years earlier. Isaiah had said that although the land of Galilee would be plunged into darkness largely because of the influence of Gentile peoples, so much so that it would be called Galilee of the Gentiles. In spite of that, the light that God was going to send into the world, that is, in and through Christ, is a light that would shine there first of all, in the lands of Naphtali and Zebulun. Suddenly the people living in darkness would see a great light. And that light, of course, begins to shine as Christ begins to preach and to perform his signs. Now, of course, there was a, a mixed response to that light when it shone. I suppose there always is. There are people who embrace it gladly, and there are people who resist it because they prefer the darkness, the darkness of ignorance, and of sin. They are happier with it and therefore they reject the truth and they reject holiness. And really last Sabbath we were together, well before last one, uh, we saw how the Lord's message was embraced in Cana and how it was rejected in Nazareth. And I suppose it's sad to say that the worst rejection the Lord got was in the very village where he had been brought up, raised for 30 years. In fact, they didn't just reject the sermon that he preached and reject himself, but they tried, in fact, to kill him by throwing him off the top of a cliff. The result of that is that the Lord left Nazareth. And that leaving was not just the ordinary leaving of going from town to town to preach the gospel because he did say that he had to go from town to town to preach the gospel but leaving Nazareth there had an element of shaking the dust from off his feet and rejecting the place because he moved to Capernaum which becomes from this point the place where Jesus lives. Matthew calls it his own city. And because it is the main town in Galilee, he resides there from now on. That, of course, is a judgment on Nazareth. 
the Lord will visit it once more in his capacity as God's anointed one, but he will be rejected a second time. So Capernaum becomes the favoured place. And in fact, Jesus himself calls it a place that is now lifted up to heaven. That's how Jesus describes Capernaum. And he describes it like that because it is simply lifted up by way of honour and privilege. No place on earth would see and hear from the lips of the Saviour and from his life what the people of Capernaum saw and heard. There was no more favoured place, no more favoured town on earth than Capernaum, where Christ lived during his ministry, preached most sermons and performed most miracles. That is why it is lifted up to heaven. But of course, many of you will know that Jesus, at the close of his ministry, pronounced a solemn woe upon that city. Woe to you, Capernaum, because though you have been lifted up to heaven, you shall be cast down to hell. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, the people of Sodom would have at least been more impressed by what Christ said and did than the people of Capernaum were. Now, there are many important and solemn lessons in connection with that, and obviously I can't really be diverted with them just now, but it's enough to say, and it's solemn to say, and it's necessary for us to take to heart that with privilege comes responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. And the greater the privilege the Lord has bestowed upon you, the greater your accountability. And in that connection, Galilee as a whole has much to answer for. Nazareth has much to answer for. And Capernaum has much to answer for in the Day of Judgment, more so than Sodom. Is it the case that you do too? Is it the case that we do? Is it the case that Stornoway has more to answer for than Sodom on the Day of Judgment? Now you would say, surely not. But my guess is that everyone in Capernaum would have said that surely not for them either. And that everyone in Nazareth would say, surely not for us either. We're nowhere near Sodom. But with privilege comes responsibility. To whom much is given, of them much shall be required. And friends, we've received much. Now what I want to do is to take with you just one or two examples of what our Lord does in Capernaum. And we'll begin by this great work that he does in casting out a demon, a demon that he casts out inside the church in Capernaum. Now this church or synagogue, these two words are interchangeable. Uh, 
James in the New Testament calls the church a synagogue. Synagogue means a place of assembly. And that's really what a, a church is. Now this synagogue in Capernaum was the largest in all of Galilee. If, if Capernaum, again, like I mentioned last time, if it is the stornway to the other towns around about, then it's understandable that it should have the largest synagogue. It had, in fact, been very recently rebuilt by a Roman centurion who rebuilt it at his own expense. He loved the people of God. He loved their law. He loved their faith and he loved their life in spite of the many blemishes that he saw in connection with it. And so he built them a synagogue. It was further developed around about 300 AD and you can still see the ruins of this synagogue very plainly in Capernaum. And people are quite convinced that under its ruin lies the original or or the original rebuilding of it by this Roman centurion. Now again, as we saw in connection with the synagogue in Nazareth, the procedure is the same. The Lord is acquiring the reputation of a rabbi, although no one knows how exactly he was taught. They knew he was not taught like others were taught. And so he is asked up to the elders' bench, and he is invited to preach the word on the Sabbath day. The Lord asks for the scroll. A scroll of a prophet is given to him, and, or, or the scroll from the law, and the Lord will read, and then the Lord will preach. This time, unlike Nazareth, we don't know what scroll he asked for or what sermon he preached. All we know is that the response to it initially was exactly the same. As he begins to teach, Luke tells us that he was glorified by all. And the Gospel writers tell us that they were amazed at what he taught and how he taught it. And the word amazed is as strong in the Greek as it is in the English. They were absolutely astounded when he opened the scroll and began to preach. Like I said, both at what he taught and how he taught it. As to the what he taught... There's a remarkable plainness in the Lord's teaching that is still so discernible when we read the New Testament. If you pick up, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, which was preached in this vicinity and at about this time, it's so remarkable for its directness, its plainness, its transparency. There is no real doubt about what the Lord is saying It's not veiled or obscured. I'm very conscious that later on in the Lord's ministry, much later on, he had to draw a veil of obscurity over it, and he began to preach in parables, which people commonly think of as a way to um, make the truth clearer, when in fact it was the opposite. It was a way of saying what he wanted to say in such a way that people couldn't um, take him to task for it or bring him before the authorities. It was a kind of judgment upon people. But prior to that, his teaching was plain and direct. It showed them the way to God, an exposition of the Old Testament. It was a clear declaration of what the Ten Commandments actually required, what real prayer was, what real fasting was, what real tithing and giving was, what real forgiveness was, what real love was. 
what was involved in murder, in lust, or in faithfulness, or in truth. And the people marveled at it, not just because of its plainness and its directness, but because, as the writers often say, he preached with authority, not like the scribes. Now, the way in which the scribes and the rabbis taught is pretty well preserved as well. You find it in ancient documents, and it is pretty dry. It's repetitive, it's full of speculation, and they're forever quoting each other. Something very familiar about all that. Rabbis would endlessly quote rabbis, what they said and what they thought. Discussions on very minute points that were really of no relevance to how people lived their lives or how they would gain heaven or avoid hell. And the Lord was so different. I say unto you, this is what God says. This is the way to heaven and this is the way to hell. It's that authority, that sense of being a man sent from God. Knew his message, knew what he was saying, knew the consequences of what he was saying. And there's no doubt if we were in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that we would feel ourselves having to make a choice, having two ways, two destinations, and a heaven and a hell. We would never leave thinking, well, what on earth was all that about? Or there was no real point in me going there. There was always a point in hearing the Lord Jesus Christ and you knew what that point was. And as I mentioned in connection with the sermon in Nazareth, we should never let that feeling leave us when we pick up the Bible. Uh, We should always be open to the direct, plain speech of the Lord and hear the authority behind what he says. And I hope you still have that feeling when you pick up the Bible that you're picking up a book that is very, very different from the other books in this life. You may find Bibles now, if you go to your waterstones, you'll find them in self-help parts of the shop, along with other pop psychology. It doesn't belong there. It belongs in a place entirely of its own. Because this is the voice of a king. You don't find the Bible full of God apologizing for himself or explaining his own existence. He simply declares himself, and the Lord declares himself in the same way. And we need to be confronted with that, and we need to confront it ourselves too. They were amazed at what he said and how he said it. That was the response. But there's an unexpected interruption. I say unexpected. I mean, sometimes when you read the New Testament, you get the feeling that sermons were often interrupted. They were never interrupted. The reason the Lord's sermons were interrupted were usually because he was assumed to be saying something blasphemous. In Nazareth, they interrupted, obviously, because... They took exception to one of their own telling them whatever it was that he was telling them. (coughs) But on this occasion, the interruption is of a different kind. A man interrupts by shouting. Or if I was going to be more strict about that, it's not really the man who interrupts. It's the evil spirit that possesses him. Now I want to look with you at this man and 
what his condition really is and how Christ deals with him. Now let's uh, begin and spend most time on the man and his condition. We're told in verse 33 that he had a spirit of a non-clean demon. It's quite clear as you read on that he is possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. This is a case of demonic possession. Now the demons or evil spirits are are just that. They are um, spirits created by God originally, angelic beings, but angelic beings who have fallen. When Satan fell, he didn't fall on his own. If we understand Revelation properly, then a third of the stars of heaven fell with him. But there was a massive rebellion in hell against God and against his son. And these fallen spirits are all like the devil himself. They are full of the same evil, the same intensity of evil, the same utter opposition constantly to God and anything that belongs to God. That's their work. They're just always in opposition to that. They're only different from the devil to the extent that they don't share his intelligence and his potential. There's no doubt that he is the chief amongst them, Lucifer, probably the greatest created being that God ever created. But of course he is on the dark side And so are all those who have followed him. And of course they see it as their business to mar anything that has the image of God on it. And they're motivated by that. Love is a powerful motivation. But so indeed is hatred. And sometimes you find people who are obsessive in their hatred. And they they see nothing, nothing at all, except the object of their hate and the desire to do that person harm. Just like Haman. When Haman was reminded of all the good things that he had in life, he just turned around angrily and he said, none of these things matter to me. As long as he see Mordecai sitting, the Jew, Mordecai the Jew, he says with contempt, sitting at the king's gate. None of it matters. care about any good things as long as he sits there people get like that and the devil is like that and the spirits who are engaged in the same work as him carrying the same image as him are like that too now it's sad to say these powers have access to our minds now if not to the extent of knowing what's in them, then certainly to the extent of being able to suggest to them. There's no doubt about that. They are able to communicate with our minds. After all, Satan himself was able to communicate with our Saviour's mind, was he not? Did Satan not suggest to Christ that he should cast himself off the pinnacle wing of the temple? just to see whether God would deliver him from certain death and destruction. Because, as Satan says, has God not promised to you that he will keep you in all your ways? 
Is that not written in a psalm? Is that psalm not about you? I understand it to be about you. You know yourself it is about you. So why not cast yourself from the temple? He had power to suggest that to our Lord's mind. In the same way, his legions have power to suggest many things to our minds too. And they do. They do. Sometimes you're not sure whether the suggestion is from the demonic powers or is it just from your own heart. There are some ways, maybe, sometimes in which you can discern, sometimes not so easy. But after all, it's no different with the Holy Spirit. If I was to say to you as a Christian, is it the Holy Spirit that's encouraging you to do this, or is it just yourself or others? You may say, well, it's not so easy to tell. No, it isn't so easy to tell. And the same is true on the dark side. Not so easy to tell. But one thing's sure they're busy with it. Satan has a vast work It is worldwide and it lasts as long as the world lasts. And his goal is simply, as Jesus said, to kill, to maim, to destroy. And he's tireless in his activity. We're told by Peter that he goes up and down on the face of the earth, told the same in the book of Job, that he's looking to destroy, to accuse, to kill. Tireless activity. Can't do it all himself, but he has a vast army at his disposal. This particular man isn't just harassed or or tempted by an evil spirit as you and I can be. He is actually possessed. To the point where an evil spirit, and this can be true sometimes of many evil spirits, but at least in this man's case, one evil spirit has taken control of his mind. To the extent that his personality is almost absorbed by the evil spirit. And when he speaks, it is the evil spirit that speaks through his mouth. Not always. You could possibly have a conversation with this man. But at certain times when he speaks, it's just not him. And it's very emphatic here in the middle of the service because this voice shouts out, let us alone. What have we to do with it? Notice the plural here. This isn't the evil spirit speaking on behalf of the man and himself. That's not the plural The evil spirit is here representing the whole realm of the demonic. What have we to do with you? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I, certainly he reverts to the singular, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now it's a fearful condition for anyone to fall into, to be possessed by an evil spirit. And and let me say right away that you fall into it by opening the door to it on your own side. The door is opened on your side, the door of the heart, not on the outside, but on your side. It's opened by certain forms of speech and behaviour. If you just give yourself over to particular kinds of sin, you can, in effect, sell yourself to the devil and the devil gladly takes possession. Now this doesn't have to be an elaborate ceremony. It's just a way of life and he just takes control as he wants to do. Some people ask, well, does this kind of thing happen today? Well, why would you think it doesn't? 
If you were to say, for example, that <clears throat> surely the, the day of Christ was a day of unusual demonic activity, I would agree with that. As Jesus himself said, this is your hour and it is the power of darkness. And there's no doubt as we follow the ministry of the Lord that there is an unusual level of demonic activity. But if you read through the New Testament, it becomes very plain that our fight with principalities and powers is one that continues. Satan is bound at the cross, yes. It means that he rules, he loses the control that he had over the nations. Yes, the gospel will permeate all the nations to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. That's a very different thing from saying that he can't be in possession of anybody's soul anymore. In fact, as I mentioned last week, we have to be extremely careful in speaking about possession like this because on one level, Satan owns everybody who's not a Christian. And the New Testament is quite plain on that. That Satan has blinded the minds of those who believe not. And Jesus said of the Pharisees that they were of their father, the devil, and the works of your father you will do. And doing the works of your father is the evidence that you're your father's son. And if our lives today are characterized by rebellion against God, disobedience to his authority, refusal to accept his son Jesus Christ, Whose sons are we? Whose image do we carry? Who is it who is in possession of your soul but the one who has blinded your mind? So in that respect and to that extent, if we are not Christians, we are possessed by him. Now you may say, well, this is another level of possession. I agree. But, but when he's got that, what does the rest matter anyway? But there is nothing in the New Testament to say that the work of the devil in this respect is over. Far from it. He suggests, he tempts, he assaults, he harasses, and he possesses. And there are many people walking around and people are struggling to find what their condition actually is. Dark, hollow eyes, seething, brooding anger enslavement to certain particular notorious sins, screaming, shouting out of control. And people look for the answer in a bottle when it's really a spiritual problem. Now I know that there is an opposite danger. Of course I do. We all know there's an opposite danger of, of trying to find possession everywhere, that everybody's problem is due to possession. Of course that's not the case. the danger of going the other way where the reformed churches have gone you know there are many reformed churches who act as though there is no devil and there is no evil that there is no such thing really as though the devil was well, like the liberal churches used to believe just a kind of personification of something bad he's, he's real evil spirits are real and if we don't know that then we're asleep and probably in their possession so it certainly does happen today. The devil still brings people captive to his will. The interesting thing about this man is that he's in church. And that's not where you'd expect this kind of man to be. You'd expect him to be like Legion was. Now Legion, of course, was possessed by a legion of evil spirits. He had his dwelling in the tombs. 
He could break chains. Nobody could tame him. He was running about like a madman. He was crazy. But this man's in church. Now, I don't know. I don't think it's really possible to know exactly why he's in church. Is it the man himself in a better state of mind who thought, I need to go and hear this person? Or is it the spirit who's in control of him who says, I need to go along there today and disrupt it? Either way, I suppose it can make sense. You may think it's a strange thing for a demon to want to go to church, but let me tell you that demons are good at attending church. And if I was going to speak about the congregation here today, there's a visible congregation and there's an invisible congregation. I hope we understand that. Every single time the visible church of Christ gathers, there's a visible congregation and an invisible one. The visible congregation is us. The invisible congregation has two constituent parts. First of all, the angels. They are present in the assemblies of God's people. There's also the evil angels. They are also present in the assembly of God's people with an interest in disrupting it one way or another. One way or another. And I suppose the, the fact that he is here in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum is something maybe people were oblivious to. They didn't really know it. I mean, they're just going to church on the Lord's Day as they always have done. There's a preacher here who has never preached before and they certainly want to hear him with an evil spirit just along the bench from them or in front of them or behind them. If we really, again, this goes back to what we think we're doing and who we think we are and what this is all about, but if we really understood the reality and the, and the intensity of spiritual conflict, we'd take things like praying before we came to church a lot more seriously than we do. We take things like preparing ourselves to hear the word of God and preparing for our family to hear the word of God a lot more seriously than we do. On this occasion, the Spirit intervenes openly. There's two reasons for that. There's a specific one and a general one. Let me take the specific one first. The Spirit intervenes here because of the man that he possesses. The evil spirit knows that whenever the gospel is preached, there is a danger of his man being released from his power and his authority. Because that's the way the gospel works. When Christ preaches the word and puts out his authority, the strong man is bound and he loses his goods. There's a danger of a man being released from the power of darkness and being translated into the kingdom of this Holy One of God. And the point is that Satan doesn't let anyone go easily. He really does not. He fights for every soul and he fights for every square inch of territory. He fights for every country. He fights for every congregation. He fights for every king and for every queen, for every institution, for every school, university and law court. He fights for them all, wanting control. If we had 
a fraction of the zeal of the devil. How different church life might be. How different our own spiritual lives might be. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't need to be called to vigilance. He doesn't need to be called to get to his task and to get on with it. He's on it. We're not on it. So he's keen to hold on to his man. Oh, how keen, friends, we should be to hold on to our own souls and the souls of our families, the souls of those whom we know and love. How keen we should be to go into battle on their behalf, even in prayer with God, that he would have mercy and save and spare. This man can hardly bear the thought that his charge is about to be subject to the gospel, and he'll interrupt that if he possibly can. The general reason for his intervention is not so much to do with the man that he possesses, but it's just to do with everyone else. He he doesn't want anybody hearing the gospel, really. And if possible, he and the legions he represents will turn them against the Saviour. Now, you may say he's got a strange way of going about that, because he says, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a strange kind of opposition. Well, the devil is very clever. The devil can sometimes robe himself in a garment of light, deceiving the elect sometimes, sad to say. He can be very cunning, extremely so. He was cunning in the Garden of Eden. Paul warns the Corinthian congregation against the cunningness of the serpent. He can see it at work in the congregation. Here he's clever enough because what he does is testify to Christ when he is an unclean liar himself. Now, who needs the testimony of a liar? If if you're in court, you've tried for something, and along comes someone in your defense, and the advocate says... "Um, have you done this and said this? And the man says, yes, yes. You're a habitual liar. Well, yes, I am. Well, that's the last thing the man in the court needs to hear. I don't, I don't want the support of a liar. I don't want the testimony of an unclean liar on my behalf. That's exactly what this man's doing. If, if the evil spirit can testify uh, and, and say that this is the Holy One of God, there's an automatic... Um, resistance to the testimony that the evil spirit is giving. Why? Because he's an evil spirit. Just like when you're doing maths and you discover that a plus with a minus is always a minus. Well, anything a liar says will always be disbelieved, even when it's the truth. And he knows that. He knows that. It turns out to be a negative testimony. But still, the fact of the matter is that he does know who Christ is, and it's interesting that he does. He calls him the Holy One of God. He himself is called an unclean spirit. I wonder if the the choice of the word uncleanness is to contrast him with the sheer holiness of the Christ. You You have a spirit who is in the image of the devil, and you have the Son of God, the Holy One of God, and the unclean. I know who you are. Some people wonder if he's referred to as being unclean because 
his sins are along those lines. There's no doubt that the various spirits that are at work push people into different kinds of sins. And very often one of the most dangerous is along the lines of sexual uncleanness and immorality. There are many people in the grip of that, completely in the grip of that. That may be, but it may also be just a simple contrast between the uncleanness of what is devilish and the purity and the holiness of the Son of God. But they know who he is. Certainly, these people will reach the conclusion, many of them did, that what Christ says and does, he does by the power of the devil. Now that to us is a very strange conclusion to reach. How is it that they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was actually in league with the devil and that that it was by the power of the devil that he did what he was able to do? Well, this kind of incident maybe helps us to understand that. Here, somebody trying to promote him when he's actually on the dark side. Who needs their testimony? So in the synagogue that Sabbath morning, this devil does what the devils do. Anytime they're with us, they distract the hearers. He's got lots of ways of doing that. Some of them seem very innocent, just with noise. He opposes the preacher. He interrupts the preacher here. He silences the preacher. It's quite obvious that the sermon had started because the people were already taken with what was being said and the way in which it was being said. So he can't have that. He can't have that. And he tries to discredit him, even using the truth to discredit him. Amazing. It all still goes on. You don't need anyone here possessed to stand up in the middle and do all that. It goes on quite silently while we're all sitting here. There are ways in which the devil just distracts your mind. It's amazing how he does it. And he can discredit the preacher. He can do that very easily too. And in my own mind, he can try to make me stop. And every preacher will say the same thing too. I remember a former colleague of mine who's been at his rest now for many years, but I remember him telling me at a communion we were at together that he had felt over a period of time that as as he was speaking in the pulpit that his words were being forced back down his throat as he was actually saying them. Spurgeon, of course, went through a time when he was preaching where all he could hear was a voice saying, say a blasphemy, say a swear word, take God's name in vain. In his ear all the time, pretty much as he was preaching the word of God. John Bunyan used to say, when, when you're worried whether something is from your own heart or from the devil, he says, look at it and think about it. Is it cutting across you? Is it going against you? Is it coming from nowhere? Is it blackish and hellish? Well, he says, it's not yourself. That's the evil one. But the point is that that's what he was doing. He was trying to shut that man's mouth. It's no wonder there were 7,000 poor people coming to the Metropolitan Tabernacle every weekend, many of them being converted. It's no wonder he wanted to shut his mouth. 
Sometimes, friends, a preacher can be far more aware of the devil than he is of the Lord in the service. But that's his work. He wants to hinder the word and to keep men in his control. And that's why he spoke that day in Capernaum. What does Christ do? Well, very simply, we're told in verse 35 that the Lord rebukes him. He tells him to be quiet, to be silenced, and he casts him out. The man, the spirit seizes the man, just tosses him aside and leaves the congregation. And and there is the man just left. And who would have known that that was true of him? Like I said, you don't need to be screaming around in tombs to be in the grip of the evil one. You could just be sitting here quite normally. Does that mean the man was converted? Well, at one level we don't know because some people had spirits cast out of them and they became worse afterwards than than they were before. We're told in Luke 11, 24 that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man... He goes through dry places seeking rest and doesn't find any. And he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. So this evil spirit comes back into the house of this man's heart which he had left. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. So the man's man's cleaned himself up a bit. But he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. (coughs) Reformation is not renewal. We can be reformed. We can be sobered up. We can break off bad habits. It doesn't mean that we become what we should be. But my own guess is that when the Lord dismisses this evil spirit, by his own power and by his authority, it's with a view of making the man whole. And I would find it easy to believe that the one who comes and dwells in this man's heart is the Holy Spirit himself. The only one who can deliver us from this tyranny and bring us back into a relationship with God. And in a way, that reminds us of what Christianity actually is. It's another spirit coming into your heart and doing for you what you can't do yourself. And instead of wrapping you up in bondage and tyranny to sin, what he does is he opens your heart and your life. And he heals and restores your soul by bringing you into communion again with God. And that's the best kind of possession. And... It's so much the best kind of possession that we don't even want to call it possession because it can't be confused with an evil spirit's possession. It's to be indwelt, gloriously indwelt, and under his blessed authority. It's not an indwelling that consumes and destroys and enslaves. It's an indwelling that leads into paths of righteousness beside the still waters and into the green pasture. It's the possession that you need. It's the the indwelling that you need today. Because like I say, without God, to one degree or another, you are under the control of the evil one. 
And let me just close by saying a couple of things. First is, let me just ask you, who is it? Who is it that is now in charge of your life and your soul? Whose path are you following? God's or the devil's? The second thing is this. If you're following the wrong path, hearing the wrong voice, and obeying the wrong impulse, there's only one cure for that. That's to recognize this man, his wonderful authority and power, which is being exercised from heaven more powerfully than it was upon the earth. Call upon the name of the Lord, and that liberty is yours. Greater will be the one who is in you than he who is in the world and who is getting control of you. He alone has the power to bind up the strong man in your heart and to deal with everything that he's done there. He alone, and he will do it. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Last of all, if there is someone in your own sphere of knowledge who you feel may be in the grip of something like this to a degree that you maybe didn't think would be possible. Back to last Monday of the communion, this kind can't come out except by prayer and by fasting. Flip that round. With prayer and with fasting, this kind can come out. Let's not despair, even over people like this, Let's not despair. The Lord is great and powerful. And with fasting and prayer, they can come out. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we pray that uh, you would keep the evil one from wreaking havoc in our midst and even before and after our worshipping assemblies. We are conscious that he is vigilant to an extraordinary degree and that he can read our characters and our motives very well, even by the mere observation of our regular behaviour. Help us, O Lord, to guard ourselves by putting on the whole armour that you've given us and to guard ourselves with it every single day. Lord, dismiss such spirits from our own lives. Dismiss those spirits who delight in constantly suggesting and tormenting, tempting and harassing. Help us to find our liberty always in your word and in prayer. In the Saviour's name, Amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 89. And it's singing at verse... Psalm 89 Great fear in meeting of the saints is due unto the Lord 
and he of all about him should with reverence be adored. O thou that art the Lord of hosts, what Lord in mightiness is like to thee, who compassed round art with thy faithfulness? Even in the raging of the sea, thou over it dost reign. How good it is to remember that. And when the waves thereof do swell, thou stillest them again. Rahab, in pieces, that's an old name for Egypt, opposition to God, in pieces thou didst break, like one that slaughtered is, and with thy mighty arm thou hast dispersed thine enemies. How good to know that this is God's power. Seven to ten, let's stand to sing. <laughs>